0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today's discussion is about an invisible threat that exists all around us and has a great effect on both individuals and communities. It's called stereotype threat. We're here with internationally renowned social scientist and executive vice chancellor and provost at the University of California, Berkeley, Claude Steele, to discuss this theory. Welcome to the Ed School. Welcome to the EdCast, Professor Steele.
1: Great to be here. My
0: pleasure. So our listeners may not know that they know this theory, but perhaps they've felt it in practice. And I'm curious, just to all, everyone who's listening here today, just the basics of what stereotype threat is as a theory. Yeah,
1: anytime a person has is in a situation or doing something for which a negative stereotype about one of their identities, their age, their race, their region of the country, their dialect... When a negative stereotype about one of those identities is relevant to what they're doing in a situation, they know at some level that they could be seen uh, and or treated in terms of that negative stereotype. And if they care about what they're doing, if it's important to them, the prospect of being seen that way, reduced to a negative stereotype, can be upsetting and distracting uh, in the immediate situation, in the short run, and over the long run, it may deter them from wanting to be in that kind of situation. Say, neg- uh, women uh, dealing with uh, negative with stereotypes read in math and quantitatively based fields. They can feel a discomfort from this pressure that would that would deter them from maybe wanting to be in that field altogether.
0: And your research on this sort of started with academic performance and then it's obviously applicable outside of academics to athletes. Uh, talk about how this theory is really universally applied.
1: Everybody has some form of stereotype threat and I think we we deal with it, uh, can experience it on a, almost daily basis in relation to one identity or, or another. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, getting up there as they say and so you know you realize as you enter, uh, you, you know seniority. Let me put it that way. Use that euphemism. Uh, that um, there are stereotypes about older people, and uh, so it, you can be seen in terms of them, and it can be uh, upsetting, and you can feel kind of trapped and and menaced by that. So uh, it it is something you know. A, a, as I say, I can't think of a single identity that doesn't have some negative stereotype, and when it's relevant. Uh, in a situation, and you know thereby that you could be seen or treated in terms of it, judged in terms of it, then you're going to experience stereotype threat.
0: And the stereotype threat really is painted by so many individual experiences. You talked about age and you talked about gender. Um, is it most prevalent in one particular stereotype form?
1: No. I think I think uh, it's it really, uh, you know, the, the prevalence is hard to assess. Uh, and I think it's really important to understand how uh, general a phenomenon it is and how everybody can use their own form of stereotype threat to understand the kind of stereotype threat that another group might be going through. Some stereotypes are, of course, much more negative and nasty than others. And if the, it's, if the area where that stereotype is relevant is also very important in life, like academic performance, uh, and you've got... Uh, a, a susceptibility to a really nasty negative stereotype about your group, then stereotype can be a particularly powerful force uh, compared to. A more lighthearted form of stereotype threat. Uh, well, our group is not so good at checkers. You know, who cares? Uh, <laughs> when you play checkers, you may worry about it, but but it isn't. It isn't a broad stereotype. It isn't deep. But for some groups whose intellectual abilities are negatively stereotyped in the broader society. Uh, then that form of stereotype threat can be highly consequential.
0: I'm curious the origins of your interest in stereotype threat yourself as a research, as an academic. Uh, when did this sort of pique your interest, and what made you want to dive deeper into eventually writing a book about it?
1: Well, it was a problem that led us to the concept of stereotype threat. Uh, we were trying to understand... Uh, why groups, certain groups, didn't do as well in school as other groups and, in particular, even when they had the same skill level and ability level, uh, when the work got difficult uh, and when it was very important to them, you'd see this underperformance. So there was a phenomenon, that particular phenomenon, that we were trying to understand and over the years of uh, research, probably at least six, uh, we wended our way from one explanation to another explanation to a sense that uh, this, this is this what is now known as stereotype threat. Uh, but it was a pro- that idea was never an idea before we started that program of research to kind of understand this problem. And then the whole phenomenon came to light in the process.
0: So let's talk about solutions. You know, we got people listening, thousands of people listening on iTunes U or on the HGSE website. What is it that they can do to stop this, to either recognize that it's happening and then to come up with some solutions as to, you know, breaking this breaking this model and breaking this habit of actually participating in stereotype threat? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, there are a variety of them. Uh, first, the, the, we have to recognize where the threat comes from. It comes from the way the cues in the situation, elements of the situation, the way it's organized, the people who are there, and, and the suggestion of those cues that maybe because of this particular identity, I'm going to be seen in terms of that stereotype. I go to hear my son's music performance, he's a jazz musician. I'm looking, how many other gray haired people are there there? <laughs> and if there aren't many, I could worry that that identity gets significant identity. So that, that just gives you an example of what I mean by it com- it's coming from the way situations are organized, the elements of, of situations that suggest this identity might be an issue for you in this situation. So one thing to do is when we have a chance to, to rearrange environments, uh, uh, do so, because that, that will be the biggest thing. There are things that individuals can do uh, that, that I think, one, I'll, uh, you know, I have a, a long list of them in the book. Uh, and so i won 't go through all of them, but an, an illustrative one is talk to people, get a habit of talking to people who are different than you. Uh, then you will discover uh, that a lot of times they 're not using the stereotype, and that will make you feel more comfortable because your own the sense of threat comes from how much I think you 're likely to stereotype me and if i If I get to know you and I know some personal things and and I, I, I'll know that you know a lot more about me than just this particular identity. And I'll, and the idea that you're going to see everything I do or judge me in terms of this starts to mellow. And uh, so th- there's a strategy. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, seeing ability uh, in the case of stereotype threat in academic situations, seeing ability is something that's expandable and learnable. The 10,000 hour rule really takes the sting out of the, some of the intellectual stereotypes that are out there. Because they are essentially alleging women in math. Women aren't as good at men. They're just biological. No. If you have a, and that, and that makes the threat very powerful. Because it says that if I experience frustration in this domain as a woman trying to perform difficult math, then maybe I don't have the ability you know, to perform it and I get discouraged. Well, if you understand that ability is by and large expandable, that you can get better and better and better. Some whole cultures, some of the cultures in the world that are the best at math, see math ability that way. Uh, That makes it not so consequential to be seen that way, and that can reduce stereotypes or its impact.
0: All great tips. And just for the record, uh, this is an audio podcast. Uh, Professor Steele's hair is not that gray.
1: (laughs) I I appreciate that.
0: Last couple questions. Uh, Is online communities is the emergence of technology is the fact that we're all connected that we all know where we all are at all times of the day we all know what we're what we look like the fact that we're so connected the fact that the world the globalized world is so local now is this is this good or bad for stereotype threat
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a very interesting way to put it uh uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I wish uh, some people who are very uh, at the front of the online movement have, have suggested to me, well, we're giving people a chance to take difficult math courses, say women, uh, alone in their own, the privacy of their own homes or something. And so that should reduce the stereotype threat. Maybe it would. I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, so from that line of thinking, maybe it would reduce stereotype threat. Uh, you know, I kind of have a sense that uh, you, you need to have a human being there who uh, helps you understand that, that people will not see you in terms of the stereotype. But, but I, th- th- those are questions that I'd, I'd be interested in, in keeping track of how things turn out.
0: Maybe they'll be fleshed out today during your talk. And last question, we would have to mention, of course, the book Whistling Vivaldi and other clues to how stereotypes affect us and what we can do. You talked a lot about it today. This book came out in 2010. I think to many people who are interested in what you have to say, they go out and buy the book, but the title to them may be something of interest. Do you want to just share the story behind the title?
1: Yeah, uh, the Whistling Vivaldi comes from a a story told by Brent Staples, who's uh, an African-American editorialist for The New York Times, about his... Going to graduate school years ago at, at the University of Chicago and walking down the streets of Hyde Park, a pretty big guy just as a student, and noticing that uh, white people were inc- uncomfortable, and they would do things to avoid them, walk across the street, hold their purses, and and it upset him, and uh, in his book, uh, Parallel Time, he has a great dis- discussion of all this. but. Uh, one thing that, that we picked up on, that I picked up on with regard to the title, is that he starts to try to become a better whistler, just wants to learn how to whistle. And he goes down the streets whistling Beatles tunes and whistling Vivaldi, of all things. And people hear that, and they, re- they stop seeing him through the lens of the stereotype. And he realizes that. They relax, that he's no longer being seen through the lens of the stereotype. The tension between them goes away. They say hello. He says hello. It's a completely different think environment. That's a Beatles lyric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's a good illustration. It captures in that story both the experience of knowing that you're being seen through the lens of a negative stereotype and... And doing something, presenting yourself in a way to deflect that perception. Whistling Vivaldi tells him, this is not a menacing young African-American male. This guy's just a graduate student at at Chicago, and I can say hello to him. And it changes the whole uh, interaction. So it shows the power of stereotype. When
0: you guys came up with that title, that must have been a eureka moment, because just in those two words, it encapsulates so much of what you're trying to get across. Uh, How'd you come up with that? Everyone who, who knows about the book just raves about not just the book, but the Title is just so. Well, wow, I'm so
1: glad to hear that because for so long we were anxious about the title. It's enigmatic, and and you have to kind of know the story to know what the whole thing is about. Uh, it, for me, it seemed irresistible. I couldn't give it up because it, as just as you described, I, it, it's a useful part of the vocabulary. You know, you can say somebody Claude is whistling Vivaldi now. <laughs> He's doing something in such a way as to prevent himself from being seen as an old guy or as a, Not that old, a black folks. guy or whatever. <laughs> so um, I, I'm happy that people like the title. Were
0: there alternate titles? Anything else that didn't Yeah, didn't tons of them.
1: It? I can't rem- remember... Uh, uh, boy, I, maybe I've repressed the memory, but the, we we had I had little notes all over the place.
0: And what thing. what's next for you, Professor Steele? Is there a, a follow up to well, this?
1: Well, I'd like that. I want to write. So, I'm writing, trying to write something about K through 12 schooling and, and what I think some of the real challenges are there from from the standpoint of some of the ideas in the book, and also just from more general uh, uh, psychological the, the the part of K through 12 that I think we don't have a grasp of is the psychology of the human student, what the experience of the student is. We think we know what's good for them and we argue f- endlessly about prescriptions, uh, but we don't try to get ourselves inside the, the experience of the student, see the world they're dealing with, seeing what all these policy uh, ideas, what implications they have for that experience, and there I think we're, we're misguided and we're missing something that we could do a lot better in, if we understood this. So I'm writing about that, uh, but mainly uh, I'm the provost at, at UC uh, Berkeley, a day job. which is a big day job.
0: Well, hopefully when that book comes out, you'll be back here at the Harvard Ed School. I'd love to be. Professor Claude Steele, thanks for being on the EdCast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.
1: The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.